Part Two, Chapter Thirteen, of Johnny Reb and Billy Yank by Alexander Hunter. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Barry Eads. Chapter Thirteen, The Second Escape. The prisoners spent the following day in the Wheeling prison and had strong hopes that this would be their future home, for with the exception of Fort Warren, it was the most comfortable place of confinement in America. Some few prisoners would have been well content to spend the remainder of the war there, but no sooner had each man selected his bunk, chosen his comrade, and made those little arrangements looking to a protracted stay, than orders were received to leave in half an hour. There seemed no rest for the weary in that delectable region, so the men fell into line and marched to the depot. The cars were not forthcoming, however. Consequently, the prisoners were conducted back, with orders to be ready to start next morning before day. "'Where are we going?' asked one of the number of the officer in charge. "'Camp Chase,' he answered curtly, as he turned away. "'Camp Chase!' The words sounded like a knell to all who heard them. We had listened recently to fearful accounts of this prison, tales of dreadful cold, insufficient rations and the awful death rate among the prisoners all of which were much exaggerated doubtless in the telling but which filled the mind with horror camp chase the boding words chased sleep from the eyes that night for neither the princely clarence nor the noble buckingham felt more aversion or gloomy forebodings in going to the tower than did those doomed for that ohio hades julian robinson of mosby's battalion and myself lay quietly in whispered consultation. We felt certain that the best and last chance was to escape en route, for once in that fortified place we knew by hearsay that the opportunities of getting away were one in a million. Among the many thousands confined there, not more than a score had succeeded in the attempt to escape. No further exchange of prisoners could take place, it was said, and who knew the war might last for years yet better to be killed at once than to linger out a life of torture and die a thousand deaths in that lengthened imprisonment. So we made up our minds that in twenty-four hours we would be free in our physical bodies if possible, in spirit if fortune so willed it. The best plan was to play the same game which I had played so successfully in Washington, only this time, instead of a citizen's suit, I determined to wear the Yankee uniform. Both of us had several changes of underclothing, and also a few dollars which we had held and concealed as a miser does his hoard. The money was destined to come into practical use, for before the journey commenced we traded the stock in hand for a blue overcoat and Yankee cap apiece. Of course the Federal prisoners knew what we wanted with them, but the little flame of patriotism which had once burned in their hearts had been utterly quenched by confinement, so they readily made the bargain. Nay, they even gave the names of several southern sympathizers living in Wheeling, to whom it might be well to apply in case we succeeded in taking French leave. At three o'clock before dawn, the prisoners were roused by the guards. A breakfast of hot coffee, bread and meat was ready for us. We were then formed into ranks of twos and marched down the street. In the confusion of starting, Robinson and myself became separated the former being in the front and I in the rear of the column. In all, there were about forty-five prisoners in the squad, and their route lay through the principal street. In fifteen minutes' walk the line had reached the suspension bridge, a magnificent iron structure thrown across the Ohio River, on the other side of which 
was the village called Bridgeport. There we were to take the cars to Columbus, where the prison was situated. We slipped on our overcoats along the route. It was bitterly cold, the north wind sweeping in boisterous gusts down the river and whistling in wild refrain through the iron bars of the bridge, hanging so loftily in the air that it seemed to swing like a rope in the roaring blast. Beneath, two hundred feet, so distant that it made the head swim to watch it, ran the river, its bosom filled with huge blocks of floating ice, whose hard crackling and grinding sounded above the dash of the wind. It was then light. The day had dawned, but the sun had not yet risen. The bridge was several yards wide. After traveling the main roadway a short distance, the column deflected and took the part partitioned off for foot passengers, which was about four feet wide. We had traversed about nine-tenths of the distance, and a dozen steps would bring us to the end of the bridge, where not fifty feet away was the depot. I was walking with Bob Ballinger, an Alexandrian of Mosby's Rangers, a tall, slab-sided fellow, who stumbled along as if half asleep, his chin sunk on his breast, and his old slouch hat pulled over his eyes. Now was the time, and if Robinson's nerve had failed, I would have to look out for myself. As I glanced forward, I saw a blue-coated figure cross the line at the head of the column, and in a few paces more I saw my comrade leaning against the handrail, and heard him mock and jibe the prisoners as they passed. I pulled myself together. The head of the column was across the bridge. I threw my old slouch hat on the ground and replaced it with a neat Yankee cap, and stepped right by the guard, uttering the same exclamation I had used in my escape in Washington, with exactly the same result. The guard was bewildered, and half-checked his pace forward, and involuntarily brought his gun down from his soldier, but he could not stop without having a scene, and he was not sure and the natural attitude of the bluecoat decided the mental conflict in his mind, so he re-shouldered his gun and stalked on. Bob Ballinger, after the war was over, said he did not see me vanish, nor were either Robinson or myself missed until some minutes after, when the rebel squad was turned over to the Ohio Provost Guard, who told off each name as the men stepped aside, and we were missed, a fine disturbance followed. Every one of our guards stoutly maintained that they brought the whole detachment over just as they were delivered to them. Thinking that we must have been left in the prison at Wheeling, two guards were sent back after us. In a few seconds I was at Robinson's side. We uttered no words, but the pressure of our hands and the glance of our eyes told the tale, though our lips were mute, for we were too happy to speak. We were in a very tight place, and the first question was no idle one. What should we do? It meant certain capture to stay on the bridge. We knew our absence would be noticed, for the roll was bound to be called at the cars, and if our absence was not discovered, the guard would soon be returning to the prison. We could not go on to Bridgeport, for that would be like running into the foe. We could not jump off into the water. That would be certain death. And how could we return to Wheeling, when on the other side of the bridge walked a sentinel who would arrest us on sight? The truth was, the only possible course of action was to get back to Wheeling, guard or no guard. So after a little discussion, we decided upon a course of action. We would write a pass, and if the sentinel refused to let us go on, we were to seize him and throw him headlong into the river. It was no time to stop then. We were playing for high stakes. If one enemy's life stood between us and liberty, it would have to go. I will offer him the pass, said Robinson. You stand behind him 
and if he declines to recognize it, I will clap my hand over his mouth, you grasp his legs, and pitch him suddenly over the parapet. So I took a piece of paper and wrote with a lead pencil the following. Wheeling, West Virginia, February 24, 1864. Privates Robert and James Smith, Company H, 4th Union, West Virginia Cavalry, have permission to cross over to Bridgeport, Ohio, and return on the morning of the 25th. James Eccles. Approved J. C. Benton, Colonel Commanding. With this document we walked toward the guard, hoping and trusting that he was an ignorant gawk who would not have sense enough to discover the imposition. As we came within ten feet of him, he halted us. He was a cavalryman, a tall, fine-looking fellow with flashing black eyes. He had his saber drawn and was slowly pacing the bridge, whistling a lively stave. Halt! You cannot go by without a pass. Here is one, answered Robinson, moving to one side and leaning carelessly against the railing. The trooper came up, took the paper, and was reading it, while I selected my position behind him. We could hear the beating of our own hearts, as with nerves tensioned and muscles steeled we waited his decision. Surely many men go through life little knowing the perils all unseen which lurk so near. Many a man stands unconsciously even while the grim spectre death opens wide his arms to enfold the victim, while he himself, it may be, never knows his hazard. Oh, said the cavalryman, this paper is not of any account. I gave a quick look. There was no sign of a human being within sight or call. Only we three stood alone on the bridge, and the dying cry would not be heard. The sands of that soldier's life were nearly run. The threads of his woof nearly spun. Surely some good angel guarded him in that his moment of supreme danger. A second later, and all would have been over, when he added, I know you boys have run the blockade over there, but you can slip by if you choose. And then he resumed his march and his tune, which came near being left unfinished. Once in Wheeling, we called at the house of a southern sympathizer, and scared that worthy out of his senses. Nor did we get a cent. However, he supplied us freely with advice to leave the city at once, which plan we immediately proceeded to put into execution. On our way through the streets we were recognized by some Yankees who had acted as guards in the prison, but who were fortunately unarmed. A lively race ensued, but as it was so early in the morning there were none in the streets to cry, Stop, thief, and aid in the chase. There were only two pursuers one a short fat little fellow who dropped out of the race early in the game but the other a tall long-legged yankee who could get over a square in a few strides of his seven-leagued boots kept on to the outskirts of the city and did not give over the run until his prey stopped and seized each a rock when his patriotism which had rendered his heels so lively suddenly oozed out and we were left in peace then we made a spurt and did not rest until we had put several miles between us and the dirty, smoked, grime city of Wheeling. Our intention was to make a detour, strike the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad, down which we proposed to travel, trusting to fortune to steal rides and be helped along by our own and others' wits, and so make our way into Virginia. I had relations living in Cumberland, Maryland, who, if we could reach them safely, would certainly help us all in their power. In fact, the railroad was the only route we could take, for the country was one succession of mountain ranges over which it was simply impossible to make one's way in the dead of winter. Both of us thought we knew what good walking meant, having had practice as foot cavalry, 
and also imagined we had experience in roads, but those hills proved we were novices after all. It was only about fourteen miles to the point which we wished to strike, but it required eight hours of constant toil to make it. Up one mountain, down another, wading streams, forcing bushes and laurel breaks, until our strength was well-nigh gone. Late in the evening we reached the railroad track, and did not stop until nearly ten o'clock, when we halted at a small cottage on the side of the road, about a half-mile from the depot, and applied for something to eat. The owner, a young man, politely invited us in, and supplied us with a most comfortable supper. We repeated to him the varnished tale, that we belonged to the Union Army, had just returned from home in Preston County, West Virginia, and were en route to Washington, and had been left by the cars, having gone up the valley to obtain something to eat, and had not returned in time. He heard us so far without interruption, when a smile broke over his face, and he replied courteously, Boys, you need not attempt to deceive me. You are escaped Southern prisoners. I heard about you in Wheeling today, and knew you as soon as I set eyes upon you. This knocked us flat, and we confessed the truth, and begged him not to betray us, telling him of all our sufferings and disappointments, until his sympathies became thoroughly enlisted. He replied that he was a Union man, but he would not divulge our secret to anyone. Thanking him, which was all that we could do, we retired to rest, utterly worn out with excitement and fatigue. A good night's sleep and a hearty meal made us feel as bright as a new dollar. We were much surprised when our host told us that in the next room was a sick brother, a Federal soldier belonging to the 1st Union West Virginia Infantry, home on a furlough. He had heard the conversation of the preceding night, but sent word that he would not abuse the rights of hospitality and have us arrested, as he could easily have done by sending a notice to the guard at the depot but a short distance up the track. He said further that we had better make good use of the time, as the guards along the roads would be on the lookout for the two escaped prisoners. We thanked him for his generous hospitality, and showed our full appreciation of that high honor which forbade his taking advantage of a foe who had broken his bread and eaten his salt. We made a note of his name and regiment, asking that if the fortunes of war should ever throw him a prisoner into the hands of the rebels, to write and let us know, and we would pledge ourselves to go to General Lee in person in his behalf. He complied, giving the name of John Rudkins, Company I, 1st West Virginia Union Infantry. A cordial pressure of the hand, and we took our departure. Tramping steadily along all day, we made very good time, passing several depots and stations on the route, some garrisoned. We were not molested, however, for we had traded off the blue overcoats and caps for suits of butternut in the most dilapidated condition reminding one of the odd fellow in the nursery tales, rags and tatters, tatters and rags. En route we encountered many Irish laborers at work on the track, and in every instance found their sympathies were with the South. There were three reasons for this. One was that in their opinion the situation of the South was analogous to that of Ireland. Another, that the southern states were more Catholic than the North, and had received the recognition and sympathy of the Pope, while, above all, the feelings of the warm-hearted sons of Aaron were always on the side of the underdog in the fight. Consequently, we rebels soon learned that whenever we met an Irishman, we had met a friend. With the citizens we had, on the contrary, 
to be very cautious in act and guarded in conversation generally representing ourselves as rebel prisoners released from camp chase after taking the oath of allegiance to which we were obliged to subscribe in order to save our lives fortunately our appearance so gaunt haggard and thin corroborated our statements and no one doubted our words after a steady tramp all day along the track we stopped for the night at a small house near the railroad the inmates who were very ignorant accepted all yarns as gospel upon inquiry we found that we had walked just twenty-four miles that day after a good breakfast paid for in thanks of which we had an inexhaustible supply we continued our tramp it was a bright sunny day the scenery along the route was superb the mountains rising grandly hovered in their pride thousands of feet above the clear limpid streams at their base brooks came dancing here and there down the jagged steeps tossing into the flowing river a shower of pearls looming up like giant sentinels keeping unsleeping watch were the beetling overhanging crags of the alleghanies the white clouds floated over their topmost peaks half concealing half revealing them on the height of the grade the view was entrancing and the eye could take in at one glance the whole effect the sun touching the clouds and painting them in gorgeous tints beyond all earthly coloring the background of peak on peak stretching in the distance ever and anon came the great iron steed tolling up the precipitous track with its long winding burden panting as it curved in and out upon its course gaining as if with fiery throws the steep ascent as it reached the crest it startled the echoes with its scream and shaking its dusty head plunged down the iron slope spurning the dull earth with flying heels and beating out in the twilight air a stream of flaky fire the sun sank below the mountains and we quickened our steps with the sudden reminder that we had eaten nothing since morning and that it was time to drop sentiment and attend to fact but mile after mile was traversed and still no light gleamed through the window no sound of civilized life broke upon our ears about midnight we were completely broken down so choosing a secluded spot in the forest and striking a match soon had a glorious fire collecting an armful of leaves as a substitute for a bed we were in a moment oblivious to all human woes an ample dinner given by a good samaritan brought us up wonderfully next day and we made good time not stopping even to talk with the irish section hands working along the track no one took much notice of the two ragged individuals walking down the road who could have recognized a gay cavalier or company darling of mosby's battalion julian robinson the lady's pet the maiden's love in that tatterdemalion limping along the railroad in the wild cheat river region i was in no better plight and so collectively we formed a tableau at which the children stared and the dogs barked to vary the monotony of the journey we were accustomed to stop and talk with every one we met who as characteristic of the people were inordinately curious and invariably asked three questions viz what are your names where do you come from where are you going to each was improvised a different answer to suit the emergency and certainly none could have traced us by our names for the only ones we ever avoided taking were the ones our sponsors gave us the second interrogation was usually responded to by the information that we were paroled prisoners from camp chase look here gentlemen said robinson as a group of countrymen gathered around the stove in a little country store 
after having listened to a frightful account of the horrors of Camp Chase, drawn from hearsay more than from imagination. Look at me. When I was first carried into that infernal prison, I weighed fully two hundred pounds. And look at me now. Why, I would not tip the scales at ninety-seven. Dang my buttons, exclaimed the listener, with open eyes, looking at the slim body of the speaker. Pears as if you had died and come to life again. Good God! I'd as lief be killed at once as be sent there, remarked another, with sincerity in his tones. If they are rebels, they oughtn't be treated as if they was dogs, growled an old, rough-faced Unionist. So they clubbed together, and we took up a collection amounting to one dollar and seventy-five cents, which sent us on our way rejoicing. We were in an enemy's country, and the first principle of military strategy teaches in that case to forage on the foe. Several days walking brought us to Farmington, a pretty place on the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad. Here we stopped at the house of Mr. Freeman, a devoted Southerner, who gave all assistance in his power. At this point all of our plans, which had worked so well, were changed. It had been our intention to keep straight along the track of the railroad, and secure in our disguise, not leave it until we should be in Virginia. But Mr. Freeman explained that it would be impracticable to reach Cumberland even by walking, as there would be several bridges to pass which could not be flanked. To cross on foot would result in certain detection and capture, for all these bridges were garrisoned, and no one was permitted to pass without having first been subjected to a rigorous examination. Should a particle of suspicion attach to the words or actions of any one, he was at once arrested and sent to the provost marshal to either clear or criminate himself. The only plan open for you, continued the host, is to take the regular train to Cumberland, and from there make your way across the country south. Leave the track, by all means, if you do not wish to be discovered to a certainty. But we have no money, we urged. I will give you ten dollars, which will be sufficient to take you to Cumberland, replied our kind friend. After that you will have no further trouble. The next night we went on several miles, and took the train at Lymington Station for Cumberland. The whistle sounded, and we were soon bowling along at the rate of forty miles an hour. We had frequent cause to congratulate ourselves that kindly fate had sent us to the house of Mr. Freeman for at every bridge we passed were sentinels at both ends, besides squads of home guards who were constantly patrolling the road and arresting all suspicious persons. This was in consequence, so the conductor of the train told us, of several attempts lately made by southern citizens to burn the railroad bridges, thus severing for a time communication between points on the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad. At midnight the train stopped. Cumberland! sang out the brakeman as the cars reached the platform. The weather during the last two or three hours had taken a sudden turn. A strong northwest wind had brought an icy blast which chilled everything and whirled the blinding snowflakes in a wild dance through the air. It was as dark as pitch. Yes, it was a wild night. The wind was increasing in fury every minute, sending the drifting, maddening snow flying through the streets. The weather was fearful for us who had not so much as a blanket or overcoat, nothing but those rags over our gray jackets, which seemed to give fluttering entrance to the cold, rather than to keep it out. The streets were choked by the flying mists that were whisked by the gale into every nook and cranny, and almost froze the marrow in our bones. The very lamps flared and flickered, 
and the congealing frost deadened their gleam and made them look like waning waving torches a bitter night for the poor soldier on picket who stands with his back to the blast a cruel night for the sailor hanging to the shrouds as he reefs the sails a cursed night indeed for all outcasts or unfortunates we had the name of a relation a noted southerner who had supplied us with clothes and money at harper's ferry after knocking up several housekeepers at different houses for it was midnight and alarming their families we found the object of our search we were ushered into the parlor ablaze with light and brightened by gleaming anthracite the curtains were closely drawn the red velvet of chairs and sofas offered enticing bewildering welcome to our stiffened all but frozen forms which sank into the depths of their loving embrace pictures mirrors and books formed a home scene which the eyes of the wanderers had not beheld for many a sad day over all gleamed the red flames of the firelight casting bright tintings into every corner reflecting itself in the many polished surfaces and filling the air with a glowing heat which pervaded every sense a greater contrast to the howling tempest without could not be imagined the host entered we told him the piteous story of our past hardships he really seemed touched for he was a warm-hearted man whose every sympathy was with the cause of the struggling south but just then his mother-in-law appeared upon the scene across her face shone no tender light of compassion she heard our story of suffering without change of attitude or the blinking of an eyelid and then we finished and waited the vanquished warrior in the gladiatorial arena met with more pity watching for the uplifted finger of the roman patricians as well might one of the old noblesse beg mercy at the hands of the tribune of the sections it was the same old story asking bread and receiving a stone she informed us that her son-in-law had taken the oath of allegiance and to help us was to break his word and he would be ruined fortunately for us there was a noble true heart in the house an angel of mercy indeed and as we were passing from the brightness to our death all that sweet grace of tender womanhood found vent as we reached the door the young wife came to us with tears running down her fair cheeks and pressed into my hand a roll of money saying it was all she had then we stepped across the threshold into the darkness the snow struck blindly in our faces the storm was at its height but the little act had put sunshine into our hearts and hope into our souls after a hurried consultation we decided to get into the country at once for cumberland was a dangerous place in which to linger nothing but the severity of the storm kept the guards from patrolling the streets we struck for the open without delay and at haphazard it was so dark that we could not see each other so hand in hand we followed a street which led out of town at last we came to a high hill we reached the top and stumbled on not knowing where we were oh it was cold down that hill with the snow up to our knees up up a mountain where we groped until the summit was reached then down again until a clearing was entered and the end we felt was not far off our limbs were inert bodies numbed while the stupor of death was upon us at last we ran against a small house and feeling carefully around discovered a door we knocked and waited no sound no light flickered through the windows at the summons we kicked harder still no sign of life was vouchsafed getting desperate we tried the door it yielded and we passed in striking a match and looking around we saw that the tenement was unfinished the plasterer had just commenced his work upon the walls 
with hardly enough life left to make exertion of any kind by mere strength of will we collected planks and sticks and built a fire and sat cowering over the flames in fitful slumber until daybreak End of chapter 13